Chapter 27, Part 4 of Volume 3 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie K. Rose. Volume 3 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 27 The Wars of Italy. Louis XII, 1498 to 1515, Part 4. Louis XII's victory at Agnadello had for him consequences very different from what he had no doubt expected. The king, says Guicciardini, departed from Italy, carrying away with him to France great glory by reason of so complete and so rapidly won a victory over the Venetians. Nevertheless, as in the case of things obtained after hope long deferred, men scarcely ever feel such joy and happiness as they had at first imagined they would. The king took not back with him either greater peace of mind or greater security in respect of his affairs. The beaten Venetians accepted their defeat with such a mixture of humility and dignity as soon changed their position in Italy. They began by providing all that was necessary for the defense of Venice herself. Foreigners, but only idle foreigners, were expelled, those who had any business which secured them means of existence and received orders to continue their labors. Mills were built, cisterns were dug, corn was gathered in, the condition of the canals was examined, bars were removed, the citizens were armed. The law, which did not allow vessels laden with provisions to touch at Venice, was repealed, and rewards were decreed to officers who had done their duty. Having taken all this care for their own homes and their fatherland on the sea, the Venetian Senate passed a decree by which the Republic, releasing from their oath of fidelity the subjects it could not defend, authorized its continental provinces to treat with the enemy with a view to their own interests, and ordered its commandants to evacuate such places as they still held. Nearly all such submitted without a struggle to the victor of Agnadello and his allies of Cambrai, but at Treviso, when Emperor Maximilian's commissioner presented himself in order to take possession of it, a shoemaker named Caligaro went running through the streets, shouting, Hurrah for St. Mark! The people rose, pillaged the houses of those who had summoned the foreigner, and declared that it would not separate its lot from that of the Republic. So Treviso remained Venetian. Two other small towns, Marano and Osopo, followed her example, and for several months this was all that the Venetians preserved of their continental possessions. But at the commencement of July 1509, they heard that the important town of Padua, which had fallen to the share of Emperor Maximilian, was uttering passionate murmurs against its new master, and wished for nothing better than to come back beneath the old sway. And, in spite of the opposition shown by the doge, Loredano, the Venetians resolved to attempt the venture. During the night between the 16th and 17th of July, a small detachment, well-armed and well-led, arrived beneath the walls of Padua, which was rather carelessly guarded. In the morning, as soon as the gate was opened, a string of large wagons presented themselves for admittance. Behind one of these, and partially concealed by its bulk, advanced six Venetian men-at-arms, each carrying on his crupper a foot-soldier armed with an arquebus. They fired on the guard. Each killed his man. The Austrian garrison hurried up and fought bravely, but other Venetian troops arrived, and the garrison was beaten and surrendered. Padua became Venetian again. This surprisal, says Monsieur Darn, caused inexpressible joy in Venice. After so many disasters, there was seen a gleam of hope. The Venetians hastened to provision Padua well, and to put it in a state of defense, and at the same time published a decree promising such subjects of the Republic as should come back to its sway complete indemnity for the losses they might have suffered during the war. 
It blazed forth again immediately, but at first between the Venetians and the Emperor Maximilian almost alone by himself. Louis Twelfth, in a hurry to get back to France, contented himself with leaving in Lombardy a body of troops under the orders of James de Chaban, sire de la Police, with orders to take five hundred of the lustiest men-at-arms and go into service of the Emperor, who was to make a descent upon the district of Padua. Maximilian did not make his descent until two months after the Venetians had retaken Padua, and provisioned it well, and it was only on the 15th of September that he had sat down before the place. All the allies of the League of Cambrai held themselves bound to furnish him with their contingent. On sallying from Milan for this campaign, La Police fell in with the good knight Bayard, to whom he said, My comrade, my friend, would you not like us to be comrades together? Bayard, who asked nothing better, answered him graciously that he was at his service to be disposed of at his pleasure, and from the 15th to the 20th of September, Maximilian got together before Padua an army with a strength, it is said, of about 50,000 men, men-at-arms or infantry, Germans, Spaniards, French, and Italians, sent by the Pope and by the Duke of Ferrara, or recruited from all parts of Italy. At the first rumor of such a force there was great emotion in Venice, but an emotion tempered by bravery and intelligence. The doge Leonardo Loredano, the same who had but lately opposed the surprisal of Padua, rose up and delivered in the Senate a long speech, of which only the essential and characteristic points can be quoted here. Everybody knows, excellent gentlemen of the Senate, said he, that on the preservation of Padua depends all hope, not only of recovering our empire, but of maintaining our own liberty. It must be confessed that, great and wonderful as they have been, the preparations made and the supplies provided here thereto are not sufficient either for the security of that town or for the dignity of our republic. Our ancient renown forbids us to leave the public safety, the lives and honor of our wives and children, entirely to the tillers of our fields and to mercenary soldiers, without rushing ourselves to shelter them behind our own breasts and defend them with our own arms. For so great and so glorious a fatherland, which has for so many years been the bulwark of the faith and the glory of the Christian Republic, will the personal service of its citizens and sons be ever to seek? To save it, who would refuse to risk his own life and that of his children? If the defense of Padua is the pledge for the salvation of Venice, who would hesitate to go and defend it? And, though the forces already there were sufficient, is not our honor also concerned therein? The fortune of our city so willed it that in the space of a few days our empire slipped from our hands. The opportunity has come back to us of recovering what we have lost. By spontaneously facing the changes and chances of fate, we shall prove that our disasters have not been our fault or our shame, but one of those fatal storms which no wisdom and no firmness of man can resist. If it were permitted us all in one mass to set out for Padua, if we might, without neglecting the defense of our own homes and our urgent public affairs, leave our city for some days deserted, I would not await your deliberation. I would be the first on the road to Padua. For how could I better expend the last days of my old age than in going to be present at and take part in such a victory? But Venice may not be deserted by her public bodies, which protect and defend Padua by their forethought and their orders, just as others do by their arms and a useless mob of greybeards would be a burden much more than a reinforcement there. Nor do I ask that Venice be drained of all her youth, but I advise, I exhort, that we choose two hundred young gentlemen, from the chiefest of our families, and that they all, with such friends and following as their means will permit them to get together, go forth to Padua, to do all that shall be necessary for her defense. 
My two sons, with many a comrade, will be the first to carry out what I, their father, and your chief am the first to propose. Thus Padua will be placed in security, and when the mercenary soldiers who are there see how prompt are our youth to guard the gates and everywhere face the battle, they will be moved thereby to zeal and alacrity incalculable. And not only will Padua thus be defended and saved, but all nations will see that we, we too, as our fathers were, are men enough to defend at the peril of our lives the freedom and the safety of the noblest country in the world. This generous advice was accepted by the fathers and carried out by the sons with that earnest, prompt, and effective ardor which accompanies the resolution of great souls. When the Paduans, before their city was as yet invested, saw the arrival within their walls of these chosen youths of the Venetian patriciate, with their numerous troop of friends and followers, they considered Padua as good as saved. And when the imperial army, posted before the place, commenced their attacks upon it, they soon perceived that they had formidable defenders to deal with. Five hundred years it was since in Prince's camp had ever been seen such wealth as there was there, and never was a day but there filed off some three or four hundred lansnecks who took away to Germany oxen and kine, beds, corn, silk for sewing, and other articles in such sort that to the said county of Padua was damage done to the amount of two millions of crowns in movables, and in houses and palaces burnt and destroyed. For three days the imperial artillery fired upon the town and made in its walls three breaches knocked into one, and still the defenders kept up their resistance with the same vigor. One morning, says the loyal servitor of Bayard, the Emperor Maximilian, accompanied by his princes and lords from Germany, went thither to look, and he marveled and thought it great shame to him with the number of men he had, that he had not sooner delivered the assault. On returning to his quarters he sent for a French secretary of his, whom he bade write to the lord of La Police a letter, whereof this was the substance. Dear cousin, I have this morning been to look at the breach, which I find more than practicable for whoever would do his duty. I have made up my mind to deliver the assault to-day. I pray you, so soon as my big drum sounds, which will be about midday, that you do incontinently hold ready all the French gentlemen who are under your orders at my service, by command of my brother the King of France, to go to the said assault along with my foot, and I hope that, with God's help, we shall carry it. The Lord of La Police, continues the chronicler, thought this a somewhat strange manner of proceeding. Howbeit he hid his thought, and said to the secretary, I am astounded that the Emperor did not send for my comrades and me for to deliberate more fully of this matter. Howbeit, you will tell him that I will send to fetch them, and when they are come I will show them the letter. I do not think there will be many who will not be obedient to that which the Emperor shall be pleased to command. When the French captains had arrived at the quarters of the Lord of La Police, he said to them, Gentlemen, we must now dine, for I have somewhat to say to you, and if I were to say it first, peradventure you would not make good cheer. During dinner they did nothing but make sport of one another. After dinner, Everybody was sent out of the room, save the captains, to whom the lord of La Police made known the emperor's letter, which was read twice, for the better understanding of it. They all looked at one another, laughing, for to see who would speak first. Then said the lord of Imbacourt to the lord of La Police, It needs not so much thought, my lord. Send word to the emperor that we are all ready. I am even now aweary of the fields, for the nights are cold, and then the good wines are beginning to fail us, whereat every one burst out a-laughing. All agreed to what was said by the lord of Imbacourt. The lord of La Police looked at the good knight, Bayard, and saw that he seemed to be picking his teeth as if he had not heard what his comrades had proposed. "'Well, and you,' said he, "'what say you about it? It is no time for picking one's teeth. We must at once send speedy reply to the emperor.' 
gaily, the good knight answered. If we would all take my lord of Imbacor's word, we have only to go straight to the breach. But it is a somewhat sorry pastime for men-at-arms to go afoot, and I would gladly be excused. Howbeit, since I must give my opinion, I will. The emperor bids you in his letter to set all the French gentlemen afoot, for to deliver the assault along with, along with his lance-necks. My opinion is that you, my lord, ought to send back to the emperor a reply of this sort, that you have had a meeting of your captains, who are quite determined to do his bidding, according to the charge they have from the king their master. But to mix them up with the foot, who are of small estate, would be to make them of little account. The emperor has loads of counts, lords, and gentlemen of Germany. Let him set them afoot, along with the men-at-arms of France, who will gladly show them the road. And then his lancenecks will follow, if they know that it will pay." When the good knight had thus spoken, his advice was found virtuous and reasonable. To the emperor was sent back this answer, which he thought was right honorable. He incontinently had his trumpets sounded and his drums beaten, for to assemble all the princes and lords and captains as well of Germany and Burgundy as of Hainaut. Then the emperor declared to them that he was determined to go within an hour and deliver the assault on the town, whereof he had notified the lords of France, who were all most desirous of doing their duty therein right well, and prayed him that along with them might go the gentlemen of Germany, to whom they would gladly show the road. Wherefore, my lords, said the emperor, I pray you, as much as ever I can, to be pleased to accompany them and set yourselves afoot with them. And I hope, with God's help, that at the first assault we shall be masters of our enemies. When the emperor had done speaking, on a sudden there arose among his Germans a very wondrous and strange uproar, which lasted half an hour before it was appeased and then one amongst them, bidden to answer for all, said that they were not folks to be set afoot, or so to go up to a breach, and that their condition was to fight like gentlemen a horseback. Other answer the emperor could not get, but though it was not according to his desire, and pleased him not at all, he uttered no word beyond that he said, Good, my lords, we must advise then how we shall do for the best. Then, forthwith, he sent for a gentleman of his, who from time to time went backwards and forwards as ambassador to the French, and said to him, Go to the quarters of my cousin, the lord of La Police. Commend me to him, and to all my lords the French captains you find with him, and tell them that for to-day the assault will not be delivered. I know not, says the chronicler, how it was nor who gave the advice. But the night after this speech was spoken, the emperor went off, all in one stretch, more than forty miles from the camp, and from his new quarters sent word to his people to have the siege raised, which was done. So Padua was saved, and Venice once more became a power. Louis the Twelfth, having returned victorious to France, did not trouble himself much about the check received in Italy by Emperor Maximilian, for whom he had no love and but little esteem. Maximilian was personally brave and free from depravity or premeditated perfidy, but he was coarse, volatile, inconsistent, and not very able. Louis Twelfth had amongst his allies of Cambrai and in Italy a more serious and more skilful foe, who was preparing for him much greater embarrassments. Julian Bella Rivera had, before his elevation to the pontifical throne, but one object, which was to mount it. When he became pope, he had three objects, to recover and extend the temporal possessions of the papacy, to exercise to the full his spiritual power, and to drive the foreigner from Italy. He was not incapable of doubling an artifice. In order to rise, he had flattered Louis Twelfth and Cardinal d'Amboise with the hope that the king's minister would become the head of Christendom. When once he was himself in possession of this puissant title, he showed himself as he really was, 
ambitious, audacious, imperious, energetic, stubborn, and combining the egotism of the absolute sovereign with the patriotism of an Italian pope. When the League of Cambrai had attained success through the victory of Louis XII over the Venetians, Cardinal d'Amboise, in course of conversation with the two envoys from Florence at the king's court, let them have an inkling that he was not without suspicion of some new design. And when Louis XII announced his approaching departure for France, the two Florentines wrote to their government that this departure might have very evil results, for the power of Emperor Maximilian in Italy, the position of Ferdinand the Catholic, the despair of the Venetians, and the character and dissatisfaction of the Pope seemed to foreshadow some fresh understanding against the most Christian king. Louis XII and his minister were very confident. "'Take Spain, the king of the Romans, or whom you please,' said Cardinal d'Amboise to the two Florentines. "'There is none who has observed and kept the alliance more faithfully than the king has. "'He has done everything at the moment he promised. "'He has borne upon his shoulders the whole weight of this affair, "'and I tell you,' he added, with a fixed look at those whom he was addressing, "'that this army is a large one, which he will keep up and augment every day.'" Louis, for his part, treated the Florentines with great good will, as friends on whom he counted and who were concerned in his success. "'You have become the first power in Italy,' he said to them one day before a crowd of people. "'How are you addressed just now? Are you most serene or most illustrious?' And when he was notified that distinguished Venetians were going to meet Emperor Maximilian on his arrival in Italy, "'No matter,' said Louis. "'Let them go whither they will.' The Florentines did not the less nourish their mistrustful presentiments, and one of Louis XII's most intelligent advisers, his finance minister, Florimont Robertet, was not slow to share them. The Pope, he said to them one day, July 1st, 1509, is behaving very ill towards us. He seeks on every occasion to sow enmity between the princes, especially between the emperor and the most Christian king. And, some weeks later, whilst speaking of the money aids which the new king of England was sending, it was said to Emperor Maximilian, he said to the Florentine Nazi, It would be a very serious business if from all of this were to result against us a universal league in which the Pope, England, and Spain should join. End of chapter 27, part 4. Recording by Julie K. Rose, San Jose, California. Julie K. Rose. Blogspot. Com.